Welcome to Art of the Kickstart, your source for crowdfunding campaign success. I'm your host, Roy Morjan, president of Inventus Partners, the top full-service turnkey product development and crowdfunding marketing agency in the world. We have helped startups raise over $100 million for our clients since 2010. Each week, I'll interview a crowdfunding success story, an inspirational entrepreneur, or a business expert in order to help you take your startup to the next level with crowdfunding. Art of the Kickstart is honored to be sponsored by Backerkit and The Gadget Flow. Backerkit makes software that crowdfunding project creators use to survey backers, organize data, and manage orders for fulfillment by automating your operations and helping you print and ship faster. The Gadget Flow is a product discovery platform that helps you discover, save, and buy awesome products. It is the ultimate buyer's guide for luxury gadgets and creative gifts. Now let's get on with the show. Welcome to another edition of Art of the Kickstart. Today, I am joined with Mark Roderick. Mark, thank you so much for joining us today. Thank you for having me here. So, Mark, you're one of the leading crowdfunding and fintech lawyers in the United States. So I'm really excited for this conversation because it's going to be a little bit different than what we typically talk about in terms of entrepreneurs and startups using reward crowdfunding. When we typically work with reward and crowdfunding campaigns and they have great success, usually equity crowdfunding is kind of a realistic next step once they've delivered their product and have thousands of happy backers. So, you know, given your 20 years plus of in-depth knowledge of capital raise and securities law and all those sorts of things, let's talk a little bit about, well, first let's introduce yourself and tell our audience a little bit about your background there. Very briefly. So I've always represented uh, entrepreneurs and their businesses and all the stuff they do. And one of the things that entrepreneurs are always doing is raising money. So over the course of my career, I've represented tons of entrepreneurs raising capital in various forms. And so when I saw the Jobs Act, which is the crowdfunding law on the horizon, I said to myself, this is this is great. This is uh, going to be transformative, so much easier to, to raise capital this way. So I decided that um, that was what I was going to do with when I got older, you know, and and so that's what I did. And for the so for the last five years, I basically do crowdfunding in all its many forms, 127 uh, percent of my time approximately all kinds of entrepreneurs and funding portals and regular portals and uh, all the flavors of crowdfunding. So that is briefly what I do. So let's talk about equity crowdfunding. I know you mentioned the Jobs Act, and I think that was what, 2012 or 2014 when that passed? 2012, May 5th. So there's a few different options there for startups. Let's talk about, I guess, your expertise on the on the Reg A side. Okay. And so just again, as brief background, the Jobs Act created three kinds of crowdfunding, what I often refer to as three flavors. And they are known generally for the sections of the Jobs Act in which they appear. When laws are written, they are divided into titles. And the Jobs Act, the three flavors of crowdfunding, are called for Title II of the Jobs Act, Title III, and Title IV. And they're all slightly different. Actually, they're all a great deal different, as you probably know. Title IV, 
crowdfunding is also called Regulation A. It is sometimes, in fact, it is usually called Regulation A+, but that's a misnomer because there's no such thing as Regulation A+. What happened was we had always had this kind of money raising called Regulation A, but it was very backwater, lots of limits. Title IV of the JOBS Act said SEC improve Regulation A. And so that's what the SEC did. They wrote a new version of Regulation A, which is why it's sometimes referred to as Regulation A+. And what that flavor of crowdfunding allows is quite great. And that is, it allows an issuer to raise up to $50 million per year from anybody, meaning both accredited and non-accredited investors, without the need to register with any state securities administrator. And that is a really <laughs> transformative change. It, it opens the, the very deep and almost bottomless pools of the U.S. capital markets to many, many, many more entrepreneurs at a very reasonable cost. And of course, because this is crowdfunding, you can advertise. So you do a Regulation A offering, advertise it any way you want, on the internet, on radio, pulling a banner behind an airplane, and you can raise money from anybody, including non-accredited investors. So it is a, um, it's a really cool thing. All three flavors of the JOBS Act are cool, and Regulation A is cool in a kind of a big way. It's a mini-public offering but not quite as expensive or time-consuming as a full-blown public offering. So when a startup entrepreneur company is considering doing one of these mini IPOs, if you will, how do they know what's the, the right choice, I guess, to choose from in terms of the opportunity that's in front of them? Well, it depends. It depends on a number of factors. It's usually a pretty quick phone call, actually. Certainly, it depends on how much money you're you're trying to raise. If you're a really a startup startup and you're trying to raise, you know, a hundred thousand dollars, you're you're not doing a Regulation A offering. If you're trying to raise, you know, five million and up, ten million, fifteen, twenty, then you definitely start thinking about Regulation A. But here's the main decision point. Regulation A allows you to raise money from non-accredited investors. It has been a linchpin of our securities laws since they were written in the 1930s that when you deal with non-accredited investors, the government puts its arm, its paternalistic arm, around their shoulders and protects them. You know, the theory is rich people, accredited investors can protect themselves, but non-accredited investors cannot. The point being that whenever you deal with non-accredited investors, it will, by definition, be a lot more expensive and tedious than if you're only dealing with accredited investors. 
So the question you ask yourself when you're deciding which flavor of crowdfunding to use is, do I want and or need to raise money from non-accredited investors? In general, the rule is, with exceptions, the rule is, if you can raise all the money you need from accredited investors on the terms that are satisfactory to you, then that's what you do. You raise money from only accredited investors because it's cheaper from a transaction cost point of view, faster, simpler. Only if there is a reason to raise money from non-accredited investors do you use either Regulation A or some other vehicle to raise money from non-accredited investors. Got it. So we love reward crowdfunding over here at Art of the Kickstart. In your opinion, what is equity crowdfunding good for and what isn't it good for? It is certainly it is certainly good for businesses that have a financial reward to offer and and don't have, you know, can't raise the money they need just on the basis of a great story and a sympathetic video. So it is not good for enterprises that are not anticipating a financial return. Okay, so if you have a venture of some kind that's super important, um, but it's not going to generate income, it's not going to generate appreciation, then equity crowdfunding doesn't do you any good because you're not, you know, you don't have anything to offer as an investment as such. What it is good for is businesses that do have a financial return um, or are anticipating a, a financial return and, you know, need capital and can't raise enough capital just on the basis of their, you know, their story and their sympathetic video. And real estate is the best example. And it's it's why real estate still comprises probably 90 percent of the equity crowdfunding market. You've got this apartment building. It's generating cash flow. Tenants are paying rent. Nobody is going on Kickstarter to donate money to the owner of that apartment building in exchange for a baseball cap or any other non-financial reward. But it is a terrific investment opportunity, you know, for reasons that we all sort of have a sense of, but we won't go into any detail here, you know. The the some of the best, I, I almost want to say all of the best investment opportunities in this country have been for the last, uh, you know, 50 years reserved for wealthy people and, and only wealthy people. And so we have this growing wealth and, and income disparity, real estate being probably at the top of that list. If if you look at the premium properties in this country and you look into the ownership, they are not owned by ordinary Americans. They're, you know, they're owned by the, the wealthiest Americans. And it is the it's the perfect, perfect opportunity for equity crowdfunding. For the first time, ordinary Americans get to invest in those opportunities and become a little wealthier. Indeed. 
That's what it's about these days here in America. So let's let's take a trip back almost 80 years now in terms of the Investment Company Act of 1940 and then how that relates to crowdfunding. Yeah, the Investment Company Act actually is not it's not immediately apparent why that would be important. In fact, I've I've recently <laughs> I'm very very busy and and looking for help was interviewing a young lawyer recently and told him he'd have to learn about the Investment Company Act and he said, "Well, wh- why would I have to do that?" So, this is why I can't tell you how many people come to me with the following idea. I am going to create a fund and I'm going to raise capital uh, using crowdfunding. And what that fund is going to do, it's not going to own assets directly. You know, it's not going to own a business. It's not going to own an apartment building. Instead, it is going to buy interest in lots of other companies, whether, you know, real estate companies or social media companies or these days, blockchain companies. I can't tell you how many people have called with that idea. Let's create a fund to invest in blockchain companies. And it's a fantastic idea, except (laughs) every one of those funds, a fund that merely invests in other companies is an investment company within the meaning of the Investment Company Act of 1940. And as such, is subject to such a high degree of government regulation as to be cost prohibitive. And if you think about what a mutual fund is, right? I'm sure you and most of your listeners have invested in mutual funds. That's what mutual funds are. They are investment companies. And they can afford the prohibitively expensive high regulatory costs because they're so big, right? They raise, you know, a trillion dollars or certainly multiple billions of dollars to invest in whatever sector they're formed to invest in, real estate or something else. And, you know, if if you've raised $5 billion, then it makes sense to comply with all these government rules. But if you're raising $100 million, it doesn't. It's It's just not... Uh, It's just not cost effective. So the reason it's relevant is if you're in the crowdfunding space, people call with this idea all the time and you you spend a lot of your time trying to figure out whether a given uh, corporate investment structure runs afoul of the Investment Company Act. That's what that's about. So let's talk about legal liabilities because I know everybody's really excited about those. But what I'm interested in hearing from Mark is the liabilities on the marketing side for Reg CF campaigns versus Reg A campaigns. How do those differ? Let's focus on the liability of the company that's issuing the securities, right? That's what we're that was what we're focused on. You're the entrepreneur, you need to raise capital. And one of the questions you ask someone like me is, well, if I do this crowdfunding campaign and raise money that way, what liabilities do I have? And the answer to that question is pretty much you have exactly the same liabilities as if you raised capital any other way from third parties. So anytime you take other people's money, you know, OPM, when you take other people's money, 
you are exposing yourself to potential liability. That liability does not mean that if the investor loses his or her investment, you're liable. That is not the general rule unless you've agreed to be personally liable. Like if you borrowed money from your uncle, yeah, you got to pay him back. But the general rule is if you do everything right and you cross your T's and dot your I's, um, you are not liable, even if investors lose their money. I mean, notice the caveat there, if you do everything right. <laughs> but if, if you do everything right, you generally are not liable. And so the same rules that have applied since about 1933 continue to apply even in our super cool age of equity crowdfunding. When you raise money through crowdfunding, if you do it right, you are not liable merely because investors lost their money. You are liable if you lied to investors, for example. And that is as true in crowdfunding as it is with any other kind of capital formation. You are liable if you hid information from investors. Um, and you are liable in a number of different ways if you violate the securities laws. <laughs> you know, a very common tripping point is, let's say you're an entrepreneur and you're trying to raise a million dollars for your business. And some guy says to you, listen, I, I've got a great Rolodex. And I realize I'm dating myself by using that word. But, um, I have a whole bunch of contacts in Outlook, and a lot of these folks have money, and I'll tell you what, I'll raise money for you, and you pay me 5% of whatever I raise. Sounds totally reasonable. But if you do that, if you raise money that way, and you pay that guy his 5% commission, and your investors lose money, they have the right to get it back from you. You violated an important securities laws by paying a commission to an unlicensed broker. And similarly, if you try to do an offering under Regulation CF or under Regulation A, and you don't carefully follow the rules for either type of offering, voila, you are personally liable to give investors their, their money back. So, I guess the answer to your question is, if you are following the rules, which can be very technical at times, um, and you're telling the truth, then you have nothing to worry about. Uh, if either of those things is not true, you probably have a lot to worry about. And I guess I should also add, at the risk of giving you too long of an answer to your question, um, if you've been in business any period of time, you probably already know that anybody can sue anybody else for anything. The point is, if you're an entrepreneur, you raise money, your investors don't do so well, there's nothing that prohibits an investor from suing you, even if the suit has no merit. And defending a lawsuit, even one that has no merit, takes a lot of time and potentially costs a lot of legal fees. So the point is, if you're raising money from third parties, I highly recommend that you have 
the kind of insurance that covers securities law claims, because that insurance will pay for the defense in most cases. So that's a, that's a very long answer to your question. Interesting. So can you talk a little bit about the new tax laws that may affect crowdfunding? The tax law that was enacted almost exactly a year ago, like next week, there, there were a couple of significant benefits built into that law that could potentially be favorable for crowdfunding investments. One, they added to the Internal Revenue Code, which is already complicated enough, they, they added this super complicated provision that says that under some circumstances, if you invest in a partnership, which would include a limited liability company, and the partnership is generating income, you get to deduct from your personal tax return up to 20% of that income. You only pay federal income tax on 80% of the income rather than 100%. Great deduction, super, super complicated. I At the time, I, I wrote a blog post summarizing as simply as I could how that deduction works, and, and that's on my blog. And, and then the second thing is that that tax law also created these qualified opportunity zones, which you and your listeners may know something about. And what that is about is local governments create these opportunity zones, uh, designate designated as such, you know, the idea is economically distressed or disadvantaged areas. And if you create a business in one of those opportunity zones, you get potentially a bunch of great tax deductions. And I've written a lot about that on my blog, too. Again, like everything else in the tax law, very, very complicated, filled with caveats and exceptions, and the exceptions to the exceptions. But that has given rise to a whole mini industry right now. There's lots of people offering qualified opportunity zone funds, including a bunch of my clients. So a, a very significant tax deduction. Interesting. All right, Mark, this has been cool. Um, this is also going to get us in our launch round where I'm going to rapid fire a handful of questions at you. You good to go? I am absolutely great. So you've been an attorney for over 30 years. What inspired you to be a crowdfunding slash fintech attorney? Well, I, I actually, I'm glad to say I sort of covered that. I, the capital formation and, uh, industry in our country was, and to some extent still is, sort of broken in, in the sense that the availability of capital to entrepreneurs is very unequally divided. And crowdfunding, because it's just the internet, has the potential to make oodles of capital available to entrepreneurs everywhere, no matter where you live, no matter who your parents are or who your parents know, no matter how distressed your community, potentially everyone will have access to capital. And that is a fabulous, fabulous thing. 
Indeed. So if you could meet with that with any entrepreneur throughout history, who would it be? Well, I'd actually, I mean, my favorite guy in history happens to be Thomas Jefferson, but he, he was a terrible entrepreneur. Who would I like to meet? I wouldn't like to meet Henry Ford because he was a horrible person. You know, I would still, I guess I betray some of my own interests. I would have loved to know Steve Jobs. I think he may not have been such a great person either, but I would have loved to spend some time with Steve Jobs. What would have been your first question for Steve? I don't know. How do you strike a balance, right, between your absolute craziness and your inspirational ideas? You know, because he was he was like Elon Musk today, (laughs) you know, who always seems to be teetering between brilliance and insanity. You know, that that was jobs. And and how you how you get that right balance. I, I would have loved to know that. Yeah. Any books you would recommend to our audience? Not not business books. I, you know, I'm reading a great uh, biography of Joseph Stalin right now. But no, I don't. I I'm not a big reader actually of of business books. Fair enough. Last question, Mark. What does the future of crowdfunding look like? I think that's easy. Crowdfunding is just the internet. And anytime the internet has come to an industry, whether it's the retail industry or the travel industry, the automobile industry, the, you know, dating industry, over time and a relatively brief time, it utterly transforms that industry by creating efficiencies, reducing costs, eliminating middlemen. I think easily within the next five years, any time any entrepreneur is looking for money, they will first think internet, crowdfunding. They won't think of it as crowdfunding, just as when we're, you know, if you're going to make a plane trip next week, you don't think, boy, I think I'll use the internet because it will have become so ingrained in the culture that. It's just automatic. And I think that's what crowdfunding is going to do to the capital formation industry. I hope so. Well, Mark, this has been awesome. This is your opportunity to give the audience your pitch, tell people what you're all about, where people should go, and why they should hire you. Well, uh, if they're interested in crowdfunding, I think they should hire me because that's all I do. And so I think I know pretty much about it. If you want to learn more, the place to go is my blog. And you can find that blog most easily just by typing my name, Mark Roderick and crowdfunding attorney into your, into Google. The actual URL is crowdfundatty, crowdfundattorney.com. Yeah. All my contact information is there. And the best way to reach me is shoot me an email. And of course my email address is, is there. Beautiful. Well, audience, thanks again for tuning in. Make sure to visit artofthekickstart.com for the notes, transcript, links to everything we talked about today. And of course, thank you to our crowdfunding podcast sponsors, The Gadget Flow and Backerkit. Mark, thank you so much for being on the show today. Thank you. Nice talking with you. Thanks for tuning in to another episode of Art of the Kickstart, the show about building a business, world, and life with crowdfunding. If you've enjoyed today's episode, awesome. 
make sure to visit artofthekickstart.com and tell us all about it. There you'll find additional information about past episodes, our Kickstarter guide to crushing it. And of course, if you love this episode a lot, leave us a review at artofthekickstart.com slash iTunes. It helps more inventors, entrepreneurs, and startups find this show and helps us get better guests to help you build a better business. If you need more hands-on crowdfunding strategy advice, please feel free to request a quote on inventuspartners.com. Thanks again for tuning in, and we'll see you again next week.